Our scripture passage this morning is found in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6, beginning at the 19th verse. The 19th verse of the 6th chapter of Romans, page 1385. And when you find that 6th chapter of Romans, that 19th verse, I want you to just kind of hold your place there for a little bit. In this passage in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul introduces one of the main doctrines or themes in this letter. The letter to the Romans has been called the greatest letter ever written. Uh, this morning in Sunday school class, we considered Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is considered the greatest chapter in the greatest letter that was ever written. And, uh, so, but we're not there yet to Romans chapter 8. But here in Romans chapter 6, we come to one of the main themes of the biblical truths explained in Romans. If we were to reduce the two, the main themes down to just two, the two main doctrines, here we find the second one of the two. Of course, the first great doctrine is that of justification. We've been studying in Romans justification in chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5. You'll remember that justification has to do with our standing before God. By faith, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Justification declares the sinner righteous with God. We are justified, declared righteous at the moment you receive Jesus Christ, at the moment of your salvation, at the very moment you receive the forgiveness of your sins, God makes a declaration upon you, you are righteous. You are righteous. But justification does not make us righteous in, that, in some regard, but only declares us, pronounces us righteousness. Our righteousness comes from Jesus Christ, placing our faith in him as sacrifice on the cross. He declares us righteous. He justifies us. But we know at that point, we're still not all God wants us to be, right? So now in verse 19 of Romans chapter 6, we come to the second great doctrine in this letter, the doctrine of sanctification. So beginning at verse 19, I want you to watch for that word sanctification. In the Bible you use, it might say holiness. Holiness or sanctification. Uh, verse 19. Paul says, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification or holiness. Present your bodies as member, your members of your flesh as slaves to righteousness. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free to, in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed for the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification or holiness and the outcome, eternal life. And then verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Every expository preacher who preaches through Paul's letter to the Romans gets to that section in Romans where he says to himself, this is why I've always wanted to preach through Romans. This is why I've studied this letter 
For years, this is why I've taken it to my own heart. This is why I've tried to apply it to my own life. And this is why I've always wanted to expound its great truth. It's because of the great doctrine of sanctification, of holiness. Now, you're looking at me like that doesn't turn your clock like it does me. But I have one main goal in mind for you. As we study this doctrine over the next couple of weeks, we're going to go back behind the scenes a little bit in the book of Genesis. We're going to continue our study in Romans chapter 6 in two or three weeks. But I have one main goal, that as we study the doctrine of sanctification, that when you think of what God is doing in your life right now, how he's working in your life right now, how he is completing the work that he began in you at salvation, how he is transforming you to be more and more like Jesus Christ, when you consider what God is doing in your life right now and what he's going to do in your life tomorrow and the next day and for all eternity, you will be as excited, you will be as grateful, you will feel as blessed as when God first saved you. Remember that? What did it mean when God justified you? What did it mean to you when you came to believe that Jesus died for your sins? What did it mean to you that when you came to know that God welcomes you into his presence now and for all eternity? What did it mean to you when the Holy Spirit came with power to live in you and through you? So it's a simple but lofty goal. When you think of sanctification, holiness, and all that that means, it will be just like when you think of your salvation and all that that means. So in order to do that, we're going to leave Romans chapter 6 for a couple of weeks, maybe three. And we have to go back to the beginning. That is back to Genesis. The word Genesis means beginnings. So today and the next Sunday and maybe a Sunday after that, we have to see why did God create us as human beings to begin with? And what did sin do to that creation? And how do we get over it, as it were, as we're renewed in the likeness of Christ? So please turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1, the 26th verse. The first chapter of the book of Genesis. And in the Bibles, in the, the racks, in the chairs, it's on page 1. That makes sense, doesn't it? It's on page 2 <laughs> in my Bible. Genesis chapter 1, the 26th verse. This is the account of the sixth day of creation. And God is about to announce his crowning work. For five days of creation, you'll remember, he said, Let there be, and with a word, God created. Let there be light. Let there be an expanse called heaven. Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. But on this sixth day... There's a marked difference in God's approach. It's no longer let there be and it comes into being where God said and it was created, it was instantaneous. Have you ever thought of that? It, it came into being as God spoke it. You know, the, the evolutionists tell us that, well, with the Hubble telescope, we can see out you know, billions of light years away and it took us so amount, such amount of time to to do that, and so the universe must be how many billions of years old. And, and so every time the, the Hubble telescope looks out there farther and sees something different, they, they expand the date and make it, make it farther out there, you know. 
But when God spoke, let there be light, it flooded the expanse of light everywhere at the same place at the same time. Let there be, be light. So God would say, let there be, and it came to be while he was spoke, speaking it. But now in verse 26, God announces what he is going to create before he creates it. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let us. Who's the us? This is a conversation in the triunity of God where God announces Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the creative act itself. The last of God's creatures that he is going to bring into existence will form the crown, the peak of creation. Man alone is made in the image and likeness of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us refers to the triune God. Someone has rightfully said, at creation the Father spoke. We see that in Genesis. The Spirit moved across the surface of the deep. Remember that? And the Son created. We know that because John 1.3 says, All things came into being through the Son, and apart from Him, nothing came into being. So now God says on the sixth day, let us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. Verse 27. God created man. The Hebrew word there is Adam. Adam means man. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Only of man, male and females, have said that God created them in his own image. And so, of course, this makes humankind or mankind different from all the other of God's creatures. In fact, this is what gives us our, our humanness. We are constituted. We are made in the image and likeness of God. And at the very core, that's what it means to be human. There's something of the image and likeness of God in eight in the very being and the essence of each one of us. I look over at verse 7 of chapter 2 of Genesis for a minute. The seventh chapter, or the, the seventh verse of the second chapter, seventh verse of the second chapter of Genesis, says, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Your translation that you use might say a living soul. God, he became a living soul. The Hebrew word is nephesh. It means soul. Man became a living soul. Now, nephesh, soul, is also used of animals in the Old Testament. Animals are souls in this regard, that they are living creatures. They are alive. During creation, God said in Genesis chapter 1, verse 30, that everything that he created with, uh, for food would be to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, or soul, nephesh there, soul life. And so we ask the question, what's the difference between the soul or the life of an animal and the soul and the life of man or a woman? What is the difference? between man and the rest of God's creatures. 
It is this. God breathed into the man's nostrils the breath of life. And when God breathed into the man's nostrils, God put his stamp. He impressed his image, his likeness, into the very being of the soul of man. We are created in the image and likeness of God. But the question is, what is that image? What is that likeness of God that, that is built in who we are? What is the image and likeness of God that makes us different from the animals? And to begin to understand the image and likeness of God in man, it's helpful to understand what the word translated likeness means. In the Hebrew or in the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word, the Greek word is icon. E-I-K-O-N in the Greek, from which we get our word what? Icon. What's an icon? You open up your computer, you see a little picture on there, you click on that little icon, and what happens? All this good stuff pops up on your screen. An icon, even on a computer, is a representation that says, hey, there's all kinds of stuff behind this. And <coughs> excuse me, in the Greek, icon refers to an artistic representation such as a statue or a painting. Now, in ancient times, the Greek word icon was also used to portray a metal coin. I don't think I've got one in my pocket. I was going to do that this morning. You get out a metal coin, and it's stamped with a die, and the coin bears the image of the die that, that presses it. And so when you examine that coin and you see the face on that coin, the likeness of the original becomes readily apparent. Now, in Jesus' day, a common coin was called a, a denarius. And a denarius bore the image or likeness of Caesar Tiberius. Uh, Tiberius reigned when Jesus was crucified. The denarius had been stamped with the likeness of Caesar. Now, with this coin, we have an example of the use of the term likeness in the Gospels. You remember that when the Pharisees plotted against Jesus and tried to trap him, they asked a question that's been on all of our minds this last week. What about paying taxes? <laughs> you didn't think about this week, or maybe you got your return in on time. But it's always been a controversial subject. Is it lawful to give the poll tax to Caesar or not? And Jesus responded by asking to see the coin that was used for paying the taxes. And they brought him the denarius, Jesus asked them about the imprint on the coin. Whose likeness, whose icon, literally, an inscription is this? And they responded, Caesar's. The stamped likeness on the metal coin showed that the coin had been minted under the authority and the auspices of the emperor. Therefore, the coin belonged to Caesar. So Jesus settled the debate by saying, Then render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are, are God's. As human beings created in God's image, we bear his stamp. We bear his representation. As human beings, we have been created under the authority and the auspices of the king of creation. And since we bear his stamp and resemblance... It should be notably seen, right? Just as if you were to take a quarter out of, your, out of your pocket, whose likeness is on there? 
George Washington's, I think. <laughs> and, and you would see it, and you'd turn over, and you would see the imprint. But when it comes to humankind and the likeness of God, what does that imprint consist of? What is the likeness? What does the image of God in us consist? Now, in Genesis chapter 2, we see three distinct purposes for which God created us in his own image. And in these purposes, we see the way that we bear his stamp, the way we bear his image and likeness. We could talk about things like we have a rational personality, we can think, we have creativity uh, as we're made in God's image. And that's, that's one of my favorites because when you go over to the Iwana expedition, whichever we call that one, and you judge the art and you judge other things that these kids have created, it's marvelous because they are expressing their creativity because they are made in the image of God. Now, the good news is that those that we see in Genesis chapter 2 is they're not hard to understand. And the better news is that I'm going to give them to you right at the top. And then you're going to see how it works out in chapter 2 in verses 15 through 25. So, so here it is. This is why God created Adam in his own image and likeness. And I'm going to give you these at the top, but I'm going to add one more thing here because it has, has purpose in it. It has to do with God's purpose for Adam. What was God's purpose for Adam and, and Eve and all of mankind? And I remember we, we used to use a gospel track called The Four Spiritual Laws. You remember that? Put out by Campus Crusade for Christ. And one of those is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, in a little track of a few pages, it's, it's a little hard to lay out what that wonderful plan is. And we normally think of that wonderful plan, well, God does have a personal plan just for me. And he does. But what we're going to be looking at this morning, what was God's plan? What was God's purpose for all humankind? And this is it. God's purpose for Adam was to live a beautiful, holy life. God's purpose for Adam was to live a sanctified life. We want to put it that way. A holy life in which Adam, made in God's image, would respond volitionally to the will of God, would relate emotionally to the love of God, and would relate intellectually to the truth of God. And I think those are in your outline. And so respond volitionally to the will of God. We have our will. Would relate emotionally to the love of God. There's our heart and would relate intellectually to the truth of God. There's our mind, will, heart, and mind. And in all of this, Adam would realize and reflect the beauty of God, the holiness of God. God intended Adam to live a beautiful life, a holy life, a sanctified life, where he realized and reflected the beauty of God. So first of all, Adam was created in God's image, so that he would respond volitionally to the will of God. So turn to Genesis chapter 2, beginning at the 15th verse. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. God has breathed his life into Adam. The Lord has planted a beautiful garden called Eden. And we pick it up in verse 15 of the second chapter. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it, and keep it. Now notice what God says to him in verse 16. 
The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree in the garden you may freely eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what? You shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. What has happened here? As soon as God put Adam into the garden, he presented Adam with a choice. With a choice. You can eat of any tree freely. And I don't know how many trees there were. There were probably thousands of species. All these beautiful fruit trees. That you think of your favorite fruit and all those kind of things. You can eat of any of those. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. In other words, God gave Adam a choice. And when God gave Adam a choice, it showed that God had created Adam in his own image with a will with a will. Remember, God exercised his will at creation. He said, let us, let us, let there be light. God has a will. He exercised his will at creation. We are created in the image of God so that we can also make choices. You can exercise your will, the will given to you by God, which is in his image. Now, why did God give Adam the faculty of the will. He gave it so that he might enter into full fellowship with the Creator. God called Adam to exercise his will Godward. Always exercise your will towards me. And God placed the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil to see if Adam would exercise his will Godward. This is going to test Adam's will. The tree stood as a test of Adam's obedience. Would Adam's will or God's will win out? If Adam was to remain in fellowship with God, he must exercise his own will in harmony with God. And we see this illustrated throughout the scriptures. One example is when we read Joshua's words as he spoke to the people of Israel after they'd come into the land of promise. Remember Joshua 24 verse 15. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Choose. Make a choice. Exercise your God-given will. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my house, what? We will serve the Lord. Make a choice. Use the God-given capacity of your will, which is in the image of God, to make a choice and to remain faithful to God and to experience fellowship with God. In order to walk with God, we have to make the right choice. God gave you a will, and that's called volition. Volition is when you are able to act on your will, and you can either exercise your will Godward or you can exercise it away from God. Now, God's purpose for Adam was that he would respond volitionally to the will of God. But if he did not respond to God, if he did not make the right choice, he would no longer realize and reflect the beauty of God, reflect the holiness of God. And at that point where he disobeyed God, the beauty of God in Adam would be obscured, it would be marred, the imprint, the likeness of God would be marred and corrupted. And we're going to talk more about that next week. And God used a pretty strong word to describe this. Adam, if you choose to disobey, you will die. You will die. In Scripture, death refers to separation. 
Physical death is the separation of the body from the spirit and the soul. Spiritual death is the separation of the spirit of man from God. When Adam stopped exercising his will upward towards God and disobeyed by eating from the tree, he began to die physically. For the first time, the cells in his body began to die. He was corrupted physically, and all of creation was corrupted physically. But also, Adam died spiritually at that moment. He was separated from God, and his will became deadened to God. And when Adam heard the Lord God walking in the garden, what did Adam do? He hid himself. He no longer had any will towards God. No will. God's purpose for Adam was a beautiful, holy life, a life in which Adam would respond volitionally to the will of God. And secondly, God's purpose was that Adam would relate emotionally to the love of God. Now we see the heart. We talked about the will. Now we look at the heart. Verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2. Every time God created, all through creation, God said, it was good. It was good. It's good. God placed Adam in the garden, gives him some instructions, but something is not good. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. God, in his essence, is a relational being. We see this in the triune nature of God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God in three persons. We sing the blessed trinity, that interpersonal relationship. And personal being is realized only in relationship with other personal beings. Now, being created in the image and likeness of God... God built into Adam the need and the ability to love God and to love others. One personal being to another. God loved Adam, and Adam was created in his image so he could love God in return. And Adam, as a personal being, was created to relate emotionally to the love of God. Now, animals are individuals, but they're not persons. They don't have personhood. They may live together in herds or flocks or partners. They may be related as parent and offspring. But theirs is an impersonal existence. And this is precisely for the reason that unlike mankind, they have been not created in the image of God. Their behavior is governed by instinct. It might be governed by training or conditioning. I've been wondering this week as the dog is laying on the carpet and dreaming and kicking and chasing something, I wonder, how does that work (laughs) in an animal? They are marvelous creatures and we love them, but we can't relate to our dog the same way we relate to other human beings that are created in in God's image. Because an animal's behavior is not governed by forethought, it's not governed by compassion, it's not from the heart. Animals have no communion of minds by which they can respond to the love of God and in gratitude to him. Adam was created in the image of God so he could respond emotionally to the love of God. And so that God and Adam would interact on that personal, intimate level. But not all was good. It was not good for Adam to be alone. He was created as a relational person in the image of God. And the animals were not going to fulfill that need. So jump down to verse 21 of Genesis chapter 2, 21st verse. 
So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, as Chuck Swindoll paraphrases, this is it. <laughs> this is what I have been looking for. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Literally, she shall be called in Hebrew, ish, ah, because she was taken out of ish. And so we have ish and isha. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God gave Adam the ability to relate emotionally to the love of God so that Adam might love God and he might love others. When God presented Adam with a wife, Adam's heart centered on that gift that God had given to him. The first couple's love relationship would model the love that they shared with God. Created in his image, God gave Adam and Eve a heart so that they might love, they might love God, they might love one another, that they might love others. And in doing so, they would live a beautiful, holy life where they would realize and reflect the beauty of God. <coughs> And lastly, God's purpose for Adam was a beautiful, holy life, a life in which he would relate intellectually to the truth of God. Our will is created in God's image, our hearts are created in God's image, and now we see that our minds are created in God's image. In all the creation of God, man created in his image was created to grow in relationship to God to grow in his love for God and to grow in his love for others and grow in his understanding of the knowledge of the truth of God and gain a deeper understanding of both the ways and the nature of God and therefore to grow in intimacy with God. Back to verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2. Remember, the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, God knows that he's going to create Eve as that perfect helpmate that's suitable for Adam. The word translated suitable here means completer, completer. They'll become one because they will complete one, one another. Adam is incomplete. He needs somebody to make him complete. I like to tell young couples who want to get married as we're doing premarital counseling and those kind of things, you know, as they're, they're talking about the differences they have or the, even their compatibilities and how they're so much alike. And, and I'll look at them and say, you know, if both of you are the same, one of you would be unnecessary. <laughs> and it's true because we complete one another. I even applied that to soccer. The kids are out playing on the, the field and I'm coaching them from the sidelines and they're huddling together instead of spreading out and playing their positions. And I'll yell at one of the kids, Johnny, you're unnecessary. And the parents look at me like, what are you telling my Johnny that he's unnecessary? That's not the right thing. But Johnny knows that we've talked about it. I don't need two people at the same place doing the same thing at the same time. You need to be where you are supposed to be doing what you're supposed to be, be doing. 
Eve completed Adam. Adam completed Eve. What a wonderful thing. But then we wonder, why would God pray all the animals past Adam, have him name them, and then declare in verse 20, the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. Now, why would God do that if he knew he was going to create Eve and Eve was going to be that perfect helper suitable for him? Now, it wasn't God who was looking for the helper suitable for Adam. It was Adam who was looking. He was incomplete. He sensed that incompleteness. But God had yet another reason for Adam naming the animals. When God created Adam in his own image, he gave Adam an intellect. An intellect that's in that uh, the ability to, to reason, to have rational thought, created in the image of God. God gave Adam a mind. He gave him that ability to think, that intellect, so that he might know God. And Adam was given the opportunity to exercise his mind. When God gave him the responsibility of naming all the animals in the garden, God brought every living creature that lived in the Garden of Eden before Adam to see what he would call them, to name them. And using his God-giving intellect created in his God's image, Adam named every single one of them. You know, sometimes we have a hard time naming our kids. Or naming what, can you imagine picking names for, for all these animals? You're probably only minutes old, hours at the most, and you have to think up different names for thousands of species, possibly. It makes my head spin just to, to think about it. Adam, created in God's image, possessed an incredible intellectual capacity. Adam examined each and every one of these creatures. He looked at them carefully, and he gave it an appropriate name that was in keeping with the characteristics and qualities of that animal. Now, here's what is neat. With each animal, with each bird, with each reptile, Adam discovered something new and exciting about God's creation. In other words, Adam exercised his God-given mind and understood something more of God. God revealed himself to Adam through each creature. Remember that? We saw that in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood through what was made. When we look at what God has created, we understand something of God. Adam was brand new. He was brand new to God. He was brand new to the world. His mind was brand new. Ain't didn't know nothing at first. He grew in his knowledge of God, grew in his vision of God's invisible attributes, grew in his understanding of God's eternal power and divine nature by examining that duck-billed platypus that was standing there before him doing whatever a duck-billed platypus does. <laughs> God, what did you do this time? <laughs> I had to come up with a name for this. And he did. I don't know what it was in the Hebrew, but I kind of like duck-billed platypus. You know, we call the Garden of Eden paradise. Paradisos in the Greek. It means garden. It was beautiful. 
It was glorious. But it wasn't beautiful so much for his physical characteristics, as beautiful as those were. You know, we're talking about that Sunday school class today. The older I get and watch PBS and watch these stories about beautiful places in Idaho and Oregon, and the older I get, I start thinking, man, I'm never going to get to see that one. That is so beautiful. But, yeah, when Jesus rules on this earth, then I'm going to get to see it. But those are, those are beautiful places. We go up on West Mountain above Cascade, and we look over Blue Lake, which is beautifully blue because of the, the depth of it. That's beautiful. It's beautiful, but... The garden wasn't just beautiful because it was a place. It was beautiful because that's where God intended to fulfill his purposes in Adam and Eve. God's purpose for Adam was a beautiful, holy life. A life in which Adam would respond volitionally to the will of God, would relate emotionally to the love of God, and would relate intellectually to the truth of God. And in all of this, realize and reflect the beauty of God. God intended for Adam and Eve to live beautiful lives where they realized and reflected the beauty of God. Did you know that that's still God's intended will for each one of us in Christ? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. What is the plan for your life? That in all of this, you would reflect the beauty of God and realize the wonder of God. But as you know, something went horribly wrong in that beautiful place with God. So next time, we're going to look specifically at the corrupted and marred image of God, how it got that way. We're also going to start talking about how it's renewed, how it's restored. And in a word, that's called Sanctification. Sanctification. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that your intended will for each one of us has not changed. And in Christ, all this beautiful, holy life that uh, we talked about this morning is possible and desired in Christ. So, Father, I pray as we continue to study this important background before we go back to Romans chapter 6, Father, that uh, you would give us a greater understanding that would hit at the point of our will, that we would exercise our will Godward, that would hit at the point of our heart, that we would respond emotionally to your love, that we would love you and love others, and that would hit at the point of our God-given intellect that we might know you better, that we might know you. And Father, for this we do pray in Jesus' name.